1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. It is now time for Children's Bible Hour. If you're here and have a child between the ages... of us need to hear, because it influences and it impacts each and every one of us. We are a community of faith. We are together. And how we treat and approach and view other people matters. And so this is a sermon, and this certainly is a text for everyone. And while I, I can't really know and understand fully what it means to be single right now, because it's been a while since I was single, I, I do hear you, I listen to you, and I, and I hear the people that you talk to. And one of the things that I've heard some of you say, not all of you, but some of you, and I think it's legitimate, is, you know, sometimes at church it feels almost like we're second-class citizens. And I understand that. Nobody wants to be a second-class citizen. Not anywhere, but certainly not at church. I mean, think about that idea of second class. It reminds me of, of first class on an airplane. You know how that is. When you get on the airplane and you go through first class and all those people are sitting there in their wide chairs with all their leg room. You know, it, feels, it looks like they've been on the plane for 30 minutes already. Didn't you just load and you're already sitting here and comfortable? You have a little warm washcloth and you're drinking something and here we are, you know, lugging our our carry-on trying to hope and pray there's a spot in the bin back there in the commoners area that we can put that bag in right and we finally find the seat that uh, is probably right next to the bathroom at the very back of the plane and we look way up there and we think wow what's happening up there they get special food up there they have their own bathroom up there in front of the curtain right we know that feeling and someone says well you're all going the same place yes that's true we all are going the same place and hopefully lord willing we'll all get there but there is this feeling this perception that there's a difference between first class and everyone else well when it comes to the church scripture is very clear there are no first class citizens there are no second class citizens Galatians 3.28, there are no lines of demarcation. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's so important that we all not only realize that and accept that, but we live that truth out as we engage in this community of faith. Paul addresses singleness in this section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Specifically, his teachings show that there are some advantages of being single. And as he lifts up and elevates this idea of singleness, he also counters all the voices that are out there and sometimes inside of us that say being single is inferior or you are, in fact, a second-class citizen. And so let's, let's see what Scripture says. Let's see what the inspired writer Paul has to say about this notion of being single. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Now to the unmarried, that's the NIV translation. Your translation might say widowers, probably either way. But he says to the unmarried or widowers and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. That's interesting. Paul makes this personal. I think many of us just assume Paul never got married. Paul just lived the bachelor life. 
his whole life. But there's a, there's a good chance that Paul was married at some time and his wife passed away. And now maybe he's a widower because he says, and, and, and again, that word could be unmarried in a general sense or it could be specifically widowers and widows. He says, as I do. And so he relates to at least this idea of being unmarried, of being single, and maybe more specifically of being a widower. And what does he say? He says, it's good for us to stay unmarried. But he continues in verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, rather than allowing sexual temptation to take you into a place of sexual sin and sexual immorality, remember in chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality? So rather than allowing sexual temptation to take you to a place that isn't honorable to God, go ahead and get married if that's how things work out. Join together in a godly, mutually submissive, as we saw in chapter 6 or at the beginning of chapter 7, mutually submissive marriage. And already we begin to see Paul's theology of singleness, don't we? He's, it's taking shape already. And what is very clear for Paul is that if you're unmarried, it is good for you to stay that way. Not only is that not a bad thing, Paul says, it's a good thing. If you're a widower, if you're a widow, if you haven't been married, if you're not married, he says, consider staying that way. That's a good thing. He says, but if, if sexual desire puts you in a place where that's not very feasible, then, then that's fine, of course, to get married. And, and, and Paul's not saying, <laughs> he's not saying sex is the only reason to get married, obviously. That's not the only reason. There are many good reasons. Obviously, love and commitment, someone to share life with, someone to serve God with. There are many good and godly reasons to get married. So that's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is, although there are many reasons to get married, you don't have to get married. It's not the default setting here. It's not necessarily expected. In fact, Paul says it can be good not to marry. And then he goes on to explain later in that chapter, chapter 7, his overall theology of singleness. So let's continue in verse 25. Now about virgins, that's the word the NIV uses, we could say unmarried people. Now about the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Already Paul has said, I don't know if you remember in, earlier in chapter 7, he said, this comes from the Lord, not me. And then later he says, this comes from me, not the Lord. But obviously Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit and this is scripture, but he says, I didn't get this directly from Jesus, but we're putting into practice some of the principles of the kingdom of God. So verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. <laughs> Paul, tell us how you really feel about marriage. Right? It says, hey, you need to know that if you get married, you're going to face some troubles. And I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to spare you. You're not going to see that verse cross-stitched on a pillow anywhere, I don't think. <laughs> yes, that's the verse I want on my wedding cake. That verse right there. 
Reminds me of the Bible class teacher who had her kids. She said, do any of you children know anything that the Bible says about marriage? And one kid raised his hand. She said, yes. And he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's trying to do is give us some perspective about where we are, wherever we are, about our current situation. And he basically says, don't feel pressure to marry someone. If you do marry, that's fine, that's great. But if you don't, that's fine too. There were probably a lot of prearranged marriages at this day and this time, right? And so maybe some of these people, when they got to 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, probably the men a little older, the women probably a little younger, maybe they had been already a part of this commitment, this prearranged marriage. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it, guys? Y'all want to go and you let your parents decide if you get married someday who you might marry? But that's probably the norm back then. And so Paul says, if you're in something like that and, and you can't really or shouldn't get out of that, then, then go forward. That's fine. But if you can and you want to, then that's fine too. Go ahead and get out of that situation. Either way is fine. And as Paul is describing these different scenarios, you almost feel this sense of of urgency, this, this, this unsettling that's going on here. And notice what he said in verse 26. He said, because of this, or, or notice this present crisis. You know, there's something happening that's, that's spurring on this sense of urgency and this sense of being unsettled. What is this present crisis? Well, we don't know for sure, It could be a number of things. I mean, what if today I said something like, because of our present crisis in the world, where would your mind go? I mean, it could go a lot of different places, couldn't it? There's a lot of different things it could go to because seemingly we have so many crises these days. And, And that's not unlike this time. And so maybe it was this notion of Christianity is still new. And when you start a family, when you get married, you're inviting persecution because persecution was a very real thing that people had to live with during that day, during that time. If you look at history at this time in that region, it's also pretty clear that there was a severe famine. There was a shortage of grain, and so that meant a shortage of food. And so maybe the crisis, at least part of it, was a very practical thing. Times are tough. The economy's tough right now. You know, think about another mouth to feed. Think about starting a family. You need to think these things through. But of course, if if you look closely at the text, Paul puts all of that in this larger context, this larger backdrop of of Christ's impending return, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to do it soon. And it's very likely that at least at this point in Paul's life, he thought Jesus would come back before the end of his life. In chapter 15, he talks all about the resurrection. He talks about what's going to happen at the resurrection of the dead. And so if you take all of the things that are going on in their culture, in their world, in their society, and you put that on the backdrop of Jesus is coming back soon, then you get this sense of urgency, this sense of think about where you are and where you will be very soon. And so Paul continues to explain in verse 29. What I mean, he says, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, 
those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. When you first read that, you think, now wait a second, didn't you just talk about marriage? <laughs> and how we are to yield ourselves to each other and we want to honor God with our marriages? And now you're saying, if you have a wife, you should live as though you do not? Of course, Paul is not saying desert your wife or your spouse or neglect your spouse so that you can be ready to be beamed up into heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. I think basically what he's saying is loosen your grip on the things of this world, on the possessions, on the ambitions, even on the relationships. Loosen your grip a little bit because these things do not define you and they will not last. Scripture here is calling us back to a spiritual perspective. As we keep saying during this series, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, as he talks about sex and marriage and singleness, it's not about sex and marriage and singleness. It is about discipleship in those different areas, what it means to be faithful to God in whatever context you find yourself in. And so Paul is trying to give us a spiritual perspective He's saying all these things that we use to define ourselves, even good things, the relationships, the goals and, and dreams we have, even the ones that, that honor God and build the church. He said those things in this life will not last. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what's most important. And so I think one of the things he's saying to those who are unmarried is this. Your calling is not to find a soulmate and settle down it is to find God and pursue him in your current context maybe you have decided I don't ever want to get married maybe you are interested in getting married someday maybe you were once married whatever your context rather than making it your sole purpose to find that special person shift your focus on God it's not, it's not to look for a husband and wife, but to look like Jesus. Being single or being married at a particular point in your life, that is a state of being. Your identity, who you are, you're a child of God. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what relational context you find yourself in. Paul goes on to explain why he thinks it's good to remain single. Verse 32 I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. Now, he's not talking about worldly things. He's saying things like relationships and, and other things, such as marriage, that will not go into eternity. Good things. But that, of course, is where his or her mind is. And what, that's what he says, how he can please his wife. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so Paul gets very practical and basically what he says is each one of us has a limited pool of personal resources. 
time and energy and emotional energy and all of those things that make up who we are and what we possess as resources. And he says, if you're married, that's a great thing, but you are going to be pouring much of those resources into your marriage, into that relationship. Remember last week when we talked about marriage, the hourglass, what was the bottom line? Pour into it. That's a marriage that honors God, one where you put your spouse's needs, desires, ambitions in front of your own. You mutually submit. So you're pouring into your marriage. That is good. That is natural. That is God's calling on those who are married. But naturally, if you're pouring resources into that marriage, that leaves less, in a very practical way, to pour into advancing the kingdom of God. Now, many times when we do this right, marriage, it helps bear witness to Christ and the relationship he has to the church. And it goes a long way in glorifying God. And so those aren't mutually exclusive things, but just from a practical standpoint, which we can all understand, Paul says, if you're married, you're spending time and energy on your marriage as you should. But if you're unmarried, all of those resources, all of that energy, all of that time can be poured into advancing the kingdom of God, can be poured into your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you can focus on Jesus. You see, you can honor God in marriage, but you don't have to be, you don't need to be married to honor God. I think that's one of the things Paul is saying here. And Paul is not anti-marriage. Here in chapter 7, he talks about marriage. In Ephesians 5, he lifts marriage up as this beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. I mean, he honors marriage, and he tells husbands and wives how they can honor God in their marriage. So Paul is not anti-marriage. Marriage is a wonderful context in which we learn what it means to reflect Christ, a context for the Spirit of God to develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It is a great place for us to learn to be more like Jesus and to bear witness to Jesus through our marriage. But you don't have to be married to grow in Christ, to develop the fruit of the Spirit, or to be a witness to the world on who Christ is. So finally, Paul delivers the bottom line about being single. And he writes this from a, at least this portion of the Scripture, from a male-centric perspective of course he is a male he's in a patriarch society but remember if you've been keeping up chapter 6 and chapter 7 virtually everything he says to men he says to women and everything he says to women he says to men and so it's pretty interchangeable here and just for our reading I'm going to change NIV it uses the word virgin I'm just going to change it to single woman and so here's what he says in verse 36 if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the single woman he is engaged to And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the single woman, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the single woman does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Now, that's confusing for some people. 
doing right and doing better. That language is unsettling for those who look at Scripture as it's either right or it's wrong. What do you mean right and better? Right or wrong, right? Not all of Scripture can be compressed into a spreadsheet with only two columns, right and wrong. And here is a great example of that. Paul says, if you choose to get married, you're doing the right thing. But if you choose to remain single, you're doing a better thing. Right and better. Both good, both acceptable. And both can be contexts in which to honor God and to reveal God to the world around you. And that's Paul's whole message. That's his point. But as he brings out this theology of singleness, I think one of the things he does as we apply that to our contemporary setting is he challenges and he counters a couple of myths that we perpetuate in society and unfortunately even within the church. Myth number one is this. I need marriage to be complete. You see, sometimes there's a voice inside us, there's a voice talking to us that says, you need to be married to be fully human, to be complete. Several years ago, there was a movie that made this phrase, you complete me, so popular. This movie of of a couple that was a very unlikely relationship. They fell in love, but the guy couldn't make a commitment. And then finally, he almost waited until it was too late, and he burst into her house, and he gives this impassioned speech, and he ends it with those three words, you complete me. And everyone says, oh, that's so romantic. You complete me. Well, we don't need a famous line from a Hollywood movie to tell us what many of us already believe, either consciously or subconsciously. And that is that we are incomplete without romantic love, specifically without marriage. That we are somehow not all we can be or should be without a significant other in our lives. That is a lie. That is a myth. And this is something we all need to hear. Certainly, if you're single, you need to hear that marriage is not about completing you. But if you're married, you need to hear that too. God did not design marriage for you to be completed. Why would you look to your spouse as someone who completes you? Now, do they complement you in some ways, your personalities, your giftedness? Probably so, and that's great. But that person does not complete you. You can't put that responsibility on another person. You can't put it on a thing. You can't put it on anything short of God. You see, any incompleteness we have... We are only made complete through Christ. He is the one who completes us. And if I look to my spouse with the expectation that you're going to complete me, that I'm not fully 100% human or good enough or complete apart from you and what you do, then I'm missing it. I am missing it. Wholeness comes through Christ. Only God can make you complete. Think about Jesus. Was Jesus' life incomplete? Jesus didn't marry. I like what one writer said. He said, to prove that sexual activity, and I think you could substitute marriage there as well, to prove that sexual activity or marriage is not necessary to a well-lived life, we need only say one word, Jesus. Paul validates singleness throughout this passage. 
You are enough on your own with Christ. Being single is not being undone or unfinished. You don't need another person to make you whole or to make you complete. Which leads to the second myth, and that is this. My current relational situation is my status. We even use that phrase, don't we? Relational status or marital status. When you're filling out forms, that's usually a question. Marital status. I don't know if we use that word because subconsciously that's how we view it or if because we use that word, that informed how we view it. This idea that, that you're not quite as important in your social standing if you're single as someone who is married. That up front of the plane are all the married people in first class, but we usher all the single people and all the widows back to the back, and all the widowers. You just, we're all going the same place, you see. We'll all get there, but there's people up there, you know, they're a little more, a little more important. I think that's the myth we sometimes believe, that our status changes as our relational context changes. Paul makes it very clear that people who are married are no more important than those who are not. In fact, you could argue that as a single person himself, he kind of tips the needle on the direction of single people have a more important role and, and opportunity. And so maybe we need to shift. Maybe we need to shift our perspective a little bit. Maybe we need to develop some empathy. I think it would be helpful. And we can't necessarily change society because I think a lot of this myth is perpetuated in society, but we can influence our own families, our own homes, our friend and peer circles, and certainly our church family. Maybe this is a good time for some confession. You know, here we talk a lot about marriage. We value marriage. And we want to hold up God's design for marriage and challenge and encourage each and every husband and wife to love like Christ and love because of Christ in his or her marriage. And we have sermons on marriage and we have classes on marriage and we have an annual marriage retreat and we talk a lot about marriage. And we should not apologize for that. Scripture talks a lot about marriage and we have a lot of people here who are married. But as we value marriage, I believe that maybe we have inadvertently devalued singleness. And so for the times we as a church family, and specifically I, from this pulpit, have dismissed or devalued or disregarded those who are single, I am truly sorry. I truly am. For missing opportunities to validate you, for making you feel like a second-class citizen, truly sorry. You know, our language matters. What we say really does matter. And so when we say, oh, you'll get married someday, we are implying that you aren't yet where you should be. You aren't yet what you should be. You'll get married someday. And we mean well. When we ask, why aren't you married? Or why are you single? We're implying that something is wrong with you or your situation. When we say, don't worry, you'll find the right person eventually. We're implying that you are not enough on your own. And that's not right. We should always remember that we are together. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. None, period. It doesn't matter your sex, male or female. 
It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your social economic background. It, it, none, nothing. It, it, nothing. None. Period. No second class citizens. Galatians 3.28. So maybe we need to change our language. A change in language only comes when we change our hearts and our perspective. I think that's what Paul is trying to get at here. Saying step back for a minute. Refocus your vision a minute. See a little bit differently. So after one and a half chapters of talk about discipleship in the context of sex, marriage, and singleness, we get to the bottom line. And basically what Paul says is, some people want and need to get married, that's great. Some people do not, that's great. But either way, either way is fine, either way can be good, but either way, the message is the same, and that is this, be faithful wherever you are. Be faithful wherever God has you. Be faithful to God in whatever context you find yourself. That's the bottom line. I think that's the point of what he's saying throughout these two chapters, really. Not just here when he talks about singleness. He's saying, no matter where you find yourself, be faithful to God. That's the most important thing. So if you're single, don't have this single focus of finding a spouse. Focus on Jesus. Flee from sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. Who knows what God has in store for you? If you're single today, I don't know what the future holds. If you're married today, I don't know what the future holds. But I know today, God calls you to be faithful wherever you are. So if you're single, rather than pouring yourself into finding a spouse, pour yourself into the relationship you have with Jesus. And if you're married, do the same thing. If you're married, honor God with your body as you yield your body to your spouse, 1 Corinthians 7. If you're married, flee from sexual immorality, just as single people are to flee from sexual immorality. If you're married, be faithful to God as you're faithful to your spouse. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, the call is the same, be faithful to God. I hope that this series will encourage conversation, maybe even prompt change by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. I've already heard of several conversations happening, and that's great. Let's continue to talk. And let's not be afraid to talk about the things that we need to talk about. If Scripture talks about it, we probably should talk about it. Certainly in our homes, certainly with others that we trust, and quite often in here as well. And so I hope conversations will continue. And through those conversations, allow the Spirit to work in your life. And always go back to Scripture. Always uses your foundation for conversation not well I think or I believe what does scripture say what does God say listen if we can encourage you let us do that in just a moment we're going to stand a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor it's a little room in the hallway behind me they would love to encourage you and pray for you you can just go there and meet them and and they'll they'll be glad to to lift you up in prayer or we as a church family will do that you can come down to the front and we'll encourage you and pray for you but if you're ready to give your life to Christ, to begin that walk with Jesus, to say, I, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, and I want to live my life for him. I confess my belief, and I want to be baptized into Christ. 
to have God wash away my sins and raise me up to live a life that honors him as a child of God. And we want to celebrate with you today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need Oh God, how I need.